Welcome to episode 63 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Conference season is in full swing again. Do you have events on your horizon? Have you ever gotten to the end of a conference weekend and wondered if it was all worth it? You showed up, wandered around, met a few people, but you didn't make any connections that could help propel your career or business forward. Yeah, I've been there too. Now I'm more selective about the conferences I attend and I go in with a strategic networking plan. Most of the work is actually before leaving for the event, starting with whether the event is the right one to attend. I used to have an overflowing pile of business cards on my desk. Now I have a system. This system has led to great connections to my business. I've met main stage speakers, owners of multi-million dollar companies and CEOs, even the former CEO of Southwest Air. Many of these connections then were guests on my podcast, quoted in my book, and also wrote a book endorsement. Are you investing yourself by attending conferences? Then stop wasting your time, money, and energy. Turn that stack of business cards you collect into cash, clients, and credibility. Create a strategic networking plan. Create a system for following up and staying connected. Get to the end of the weekend and have concrete evidence that you took steps to meet your goals. You want help doing this? Read my best-selling business book, Croissants vs. Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. Purchase it at robbysamuels.com slash bookstore and receive all of the book's bonuses, including the free audiobook. On the Schmooze is proud to be a headliner on C-Suite Radio, which is part of the C-Suite Network, a network of a half million C-level executives. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest is an astrophysicist turned new media whiz who has earned five Ivy League degrees and holds six patents. He helped build an X-ray observational satellite for NASA and has co-founded and led several ventures. A serious athlete, he's completed six marathons and competed at the world and national levels of ultimate Frisbee. He has swam across the Hudson River and has done burpees every day for six years. That's 90,000 and counting. Although his passions are dramatically diverse, his dedication to excellence in all of them has established him as a thought leader in fields that include science, invention, entrepreneurship, art, leadership, coaching, and education. My guest co-founded Submedia, which brought to market one of his inventions, a technology to display motion pictures for subway riders to enjoy between stations, thereby pioneering the field of commercial in-tunnel media. Submedia has grown worldwide to install dozens of displays in the Americas, Europe, Asia, and Australia. His book, Leadership Step-by-Step, is a powerful and practical guide to help readers cultivate key abilities behaviors, and beliefs through experience. This isn't your run-of-the-mill leadership book. Please join me in welcoming Josh Spadak. Hey, great to be here. Thank you very much. Josh, thank you so much for joining me from your office in Manhattan. I'm really excited to have you here and to learn more about your story, but I want to just jump right in. It's a podcast about leadership and networking. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So leadership to me is fundamentally social and fundamentally fundamentally social and emotional activity. You have to involve other people and you involve motivations. To me, 
my working definition of leadership is to influence at least one other person to achieve a common goal. I like it. It's very succinct. Considering you've you've written the book on it, and I earlier before we hit record, I was imagining you probably had a four hour version of that answer as well, because you could just like talk about this endlessly. I have a four year version of it as well. Yeah, <laughs> and all the iterations after that. Um, yeah. I live long enough. It's a forty year iteration. So, um, what drew you to 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 write about that? Is it is is leadership's like been a core piece of your history? Is it something you've thought a lot about? Like, how did you first come to that? I would say that I had poor leadership skills growing up. I, there's a story that I forget if I put it in my book. Yeah, I did. It was, uh, I was, um, when I played sports in college, I played ultimate Frisbee. And at the end of the long day, we would, we would drive vans to the tournaments. In a tournament, you play like three games a day. Each game is roughly like a soccer game. So we're really tired at the end. We're sweaty. We're hungry. We're dirty. We want to take showers. We want to eat dinner. We want to get back to the hotel and rest so we can play the next day. And inevitably, everyone would go to the vans and sit outside the vans and change out of their dirty clothes there and in cleats. And I would, I would always say, why don't we get into the van and change in the vans? Because then we can drive and take showers faster, get food faster and so forth. And they never got in. They would just look at me and be like, Sounds like a great idea. And they wouldn't do it. <laughs> and so finally, one time, my friend KJ, he said, I was like, why don't you just get in? And he goes, Josh, I hear what you're saying. I agree. I agree with it. It makes sense. But something about the way you're saying it makes me not want to do it. Wow. Which I would say is the opposite of leadership to <laughs> try to get people to do something and have them not do it specifically because of how you're doing it, even though it logically makes sense. And, you know, like I said, it's fundamentally social, fundamentally emotional. I didn't say it's fundamentally logical. Leadership, and often, you know, the word convince, it makes me cringe because a lot of people say, how are you going to convince someone to do something? I'm like, convince is more, my definition of convince is provoke debate. It's usually, it's like activating someone's debate center is almost the opposite of what you generally want to do. They argue back. So I did not have these skills. When I went to business school, I took classes in leadership and I learned that, you know, one of the big things I learned was that you don't have to be born a leader to become, to improve your skills at it. Nonetheless, when I went out and put those skills into practice, I found out that I didn't really learn them. I just learned that you could learn them. So after school, when I started learning in practice, I started realizing, yes, you could learn it, but the way that we learned it wasn't effective and learning more actively experientially that was more effective. And so when I started learning in life and then realizing that you could systematize that process, that's when I st started really getting into it and feeling like this is not only is it something, oh, and, and feeling that, you know, you learn more physics and you know more. You learn more leadership, your relationships improve, your emotional well-being improves. And so that was very interesting to me. I, 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 my relationships got better. My um, emotional well-being got better. I was happier. And so the more I studied and the more I practiced, the happier I got. Because it's a practice. Like you can't just think about it. You have to, it's experiential. You're, you're doing it. And it's, it's probably making you very conscious of the way you communicate about the relationships that you have with people, whether or not you're being heard. Like, is your message sound? Like, are you leading people really for their benefit or yours? I mean, it does really make you think through things. Most people that I have on this show, 
um, are able to point to like moments early on where they, you know, were in some way sort of inspired to step out and step in, not always like in a formal role, um, you know, like school, you know, president or something, but, um, you know, we're the person that their friends turn to for like, what are we doing now? And you have, (laughs) you're sharing the exact opposite experience. And yet, um, I guess the good news is for everyone listening who did not have like a lot of opportunities for leadership early on, who were not seen or did not perceive themselves to be a leader early on, like you have 180 that and have taken this amorphous sort of concept and systematized it and helped other people now. Like your book is really about, I'm, I'm like a prime example of a person who would look at your book, read it and not necessarily do the exercises, right? Cause like you have to do them. You can't just like read them passively um, to get a lot out of it. And that's, you were able to think that way because it's what helped you, I think is why you were able to share that knowledge. Yeah. A big thing for me is because it improved my life so much is to make it accessible. Because for me, one of the things that held me back was I thought it was inaccessible, you know, thinking that it, believing that you have to be born that way makes it completely inaccessible. And who doesn't want to share something that made your life much, much better. And yeah. And so uh, I, I want to point out, I systematize the learning of it. The practice of it is going to be unique to everyone who does it, but the learning, I think uh, there are certain exercises, there are certain practices that develop skills that are important. And, and, you know, I saw that no one else was doing it. It worked. And the more I, it worked with me. And then the more I did it with, with my students and clients, the more it worked with them as well. So, uh, yeah, I want to clean it. Oh, yeah, actually, there's another thing. When you were introducing me, you said that I um, excelled at everything that I did. The things that I excel at, I keep doing. The things that I don't excel at, I don't keep doing them. So there's a selection effect there. There's a lot I, of things that I'm not good at. I love that you just pointed that out, Josh, because I've never actually shared this on the podcast. But um, so everyone knows uh, who's been listening for a while that I'm a dad. And but prior to being a dad, I didn't know kids. I had no little children in my life. And I like to be good at what I do. And so like you, I don't do things that I don't compete well in. I don't, or that I won't excel at, or I won't feel confident in, right? They go to the wayside. Like, cause I can think of a zillion things that I don't do on a regular basis. Parenting, I knew I had to get good at because I wasn't going to be happy if I sort of just like, you know, muttered my way through in a mediocre kind of way, <laughs> but I had no experience. And I said about it in a very similar way to like really kind of get on board with what this looked like. It's why it's being a parent has become such a huge part of my life is because to really excel at it, I had to step up. But I think you're right. Like a lot of us, you know, you just, I guess the difference between us or you in particular and like most of the population is that there's still a wide range of things you excel at. Like even though you're saying you're selective, your selection of things you excel at are, are pretty wide ranging. Um, That's because I don't work at a regular job and, and you know, I, I, I have a very simple life that doesn't require a lot. So I t- I've never gone up the corporate ladder. A lot of people have done that. Good for them. I don't want to do that. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. Oh, well, a lifetime. I mean, that's the, the carrot that most people are aiming for uh, at the end of all of this. Yeah. And I hope it makes them happy. If so, great. So when you uh, kind of got into the workforce and started to think about this, um, you know, you had an opportunity to take these classes and then you were now out in the, out in the quote unquote real world. And like, at what point did you veer off that track or did you know right away you didn't want to be climbing the corporate ladder? Well, I, before business school, there was 
Submedia, the company that I founded. So uh, the track was, you know, regular school up through college. In college, I, it took me a while, but eventually I realized I really love physics and I decided to go to get a PhD in physics. And in graduate school is when I realized that the practice of physics in the 90s was not what it was in like the 50s or earlier when it was like discovering new particles all over the place. And so I didn't want to continue in physics. And uh, with a friend, I ended up co-founding a company and starting a company. And that's, let's see, how do I put it? On the technical side and getting the company started, I was effective. When, the comp- when things got really difficult post 9-11 in recession, that's my people skills were very, th- there's a lot to be desired. And so that was like a very difficult period when things, when I lost control of the company that I founded and didn't know why, thought, and everything that I knew of abstract analysis and, you know, physics type of, of problem solving didn't apply to the, you know, people leaving the company. And I didn't know, I, I didn't even see what the issues were because relationships didn't really mean anything to me then. So business school is when I went in thinking, I've been a CEO for a company for years. I know more math than anyone. This is going to be a cakewalk. And I didn't even make it through. I did not even make it through orientation before realizing I had, I, there was like huge things I didn't know what was going on. You know, not that I'm the most humble person in the world, but that gave me some humility enough to realize that I had a lot to learn. And that experience of, of now that was one of the major experiences of realizing these people who didn't have the math training that I did could do analysis, could do financial stuff much better than I could. It's not the same. It's not complicated math. It's just a different approach. And the people who had leadership experience, I didn't even know what was going on. I mean, I was really like, I thought this is going to be such an easy class and I didn't know what was going on. And, and something stuck and something didn't, but it, it made me very, very interested. And then after that, when I started really putting it into practice, that's when the improvement started really happening. And it was just, once you get started, I mean, imagine at, at one point I could easily say that every relationship I had was better than any relationship that I had before outside of family. And why, how could you not focus on that? Well, it's so interesting because you, you, you're lived in like an oblivion, unaware of even what it is you needed to work on or the impact you were having on other people, other than the results. Like you saw people leaving. So you saw the results of the impact, but you didn't have any idea that you were part of that. Why, why business school? Was that just because, I mean, you seem to like to rack up degrees. So, <laughs> so maybe that's not even a question. Okay. So after I got squeezed out of my company, I, well, I had, I, I had to pay maintenance on my apartment and I had to eat. So I needed food. I didn't, you know, my savings was gone. So I had to get a job. So I worked at a company for a while and, um, that was a corporate, well, it started off at a friend's company, but then they got acquired by a big Fortune 100 company. And so I was in the corporate world for a little while there. I really didn't, that wasn't right for me. I knew that I wanted to start companies, but I also knew something, I didn't know what, what, what happened, but I knew that I didn't know it. So I needed something. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to like start a company again and then hit the same thing. So I figured looking back, if I, well, the, you know, when you teach a course, you, I don't know about everyone else, but I teach courses that I wish that I could have taken that weren't available. So if my courses were available, then I would have taken them and not done business school. Cause I think my courses, I mean, if you're going into finance or you're going into working, you want to work at some global corporation or you want to work in, a, in, in um, consulting business school may be the best thing for you. 
you're going to get connections. You're going to learn how to do discounted cash flows and capital market stuff. But if you want to be a, a, an entrepreneur, a hustler, I don't know if business school is the best place. And my courses, my courses for, for me would have been all I needed and not business school. So actually tell me a little bit about what, so you're talking about Spodic Academy and like what is most rewarding about the fact that you now have really like created and I mean, it's like you said, it's, it's like, I mean, I like the word academy actually, because it's not just like a thing. You've created a whole ecosystem of offerings. What's most rewarding about having all of that and, and being able to work with people? Oh, the student responses. That's hands down. It's the students who at the beginning were like, what's going on? And this isn't what school is like for me. And these exercises, I don't see the point to, oh my God, I had no idea. And, you know, one of my, one of my, uh, a client slash student, I mean, he did one-on-ones with me, you know, he, he, he was a CTO of a company and didn't really like being a CTO. It's just, he'd risen up and why not do the best you can at what you're trained at. And ultimately he met, he took some time off, went and he met some guy who ran, ran a fashion company who had some tech issues and he helped the guy with the tech issues. And he said, you know, I like the, I like this fashion stuff. And the guy described it and he goes, and I led him to hire me, <laughs> which to me is like a, a totally normal thing that you would do. If someone has a job and they, if, if someone has a need for stuff and you could do it, lead them to hire you. Don't say like, like just say, can I give you a resume and will you interview me? It's like, it's almost like saying, please pay me for like, I'll do anything. He led him. He, you know, he found out what the guy's interests were and said, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. He was very clear. Like, I'm not, I don't have experience in this. And the guy said what, what, what people say to a lot of my students when they hire them, which is, I can't teach what you have. I can teach you fashion, but I can't teach getting it. And you get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, people don't realize that this getting it is it's taught by you. <laughs> it is actually something you can teach. Yeah. But most people aren't. You just can't teach it through traditional, like you can't read. There's no amount of books that you can read to get integrity. There's no amount, of, no amount of lectures you can listen to to get persistence. It's, you have to, that's why I said socially, you have to practice social and emotional skills to get social, I'm sorry, you have to take on social emotional challenges to learn social and emotional skills, which you don't get from reading and writing and taking tests. Mm-hmm. But often, it, you know, do you notice that when people um, first acquire some of these new skills, do they... Uh, want to practice them everywhere and then the people around them don't know kind of what that, like, is this shift so much that like the people around them don't know how to kind of handle this new persona? Like, you know know what I mean? Like sometimes, you know, you're trying to be the better you, but the people around you were like, but I liked a new, you were predictable before and now you're not as predictable. And um, sometimes you have to kind of shift the communities that you're in, the networks you're in because they're no longer it doesn't jive. Is that part of the experience sometimes for people? People who take the leadership class, yeah. Uh, but I point out that when you live increasingly by your values and you stop living by other people's values, some people in your life, you're going to spend less time with. And some pe- but some people you're going to spend more time with. And almost always the people you spend more time with are the ones that you either you share values with or they complement in some way that, that you enjoy spending time with. And you're not going to miss the people that you don't spend time with. In the, in the case sometimes where you do, they'll come back and it will be stronger than it was before. 
you know, I had another client, he was, he worked in animation and he wanted to be a director. And he was really concerned that as he saw it, director is better than animator. So he felt like, are they going to resent me for this? On the contrary, they were very, they were happy to see him go. They didn't want to be directors. And so it didn't make sense for them to try. They didn't want, they didn't see it as that's better. They, it was better for him. And they were actually very happy to see him become a director. And when it came time for him to direct them, they were happy for it because that's the way a director behaves with an animator. They, weren't, they didn't resent him at all. Interesting. He wished he had done it earlier. Yeah, but there's a, the fear of sort of unknown uh, is sort of holding people back. So even when you know that a course like yours is out there, people might still resist applying and then going. It's like, you know, now that it's funny, you just told people not being born with leadership skills is not just mean that you never can acquire them. And now there are people like, oh, well, now I have the option to work hard at it. <laughs> and people have to then decide to work hard at it, right? Like now that you presented them with this offering. Um, are yeah, there- it's, I mean, it's, you get new skills. Yeah, you will take on more responsibility and you will look at the world and say, I can do something about this. You, you lose the ability to blame other people for your problems. And people who prefer blaming other people for their problems, yes, the, the responsibility is going to, they're not going to want it. That's their business. My class isn't for them. Yeah. It's always good when you're building something like this to be clear on who you're trying to attract. And then that's okay. Like, you know, the rest of the world doesn't have to sign up for it. Um, so what's been really challenging for you about this shift as you sort of, you know, decided to conceptualize this and put it into place and create courses and then the book, like what, what's the challenge you face along the way and how did you overcome it? You said that like it was a singular thing. There's a lot of, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, it's okay. I teach at NYU. So you, you know, you can take my courses there. Here's a big challenge. Universities are designed around subject matter, content area, and they're designed to give you, they don't think of it this way but they're really designed to get you to learn facts and to give, you know, they'll say analysis too. And then to recite, give you the facts back to show that you, to demonstrate that you got them. All right. There's a certain logic to that. It may be in some fields that, that that's very effective, but in my fields, it's not effective. No leader became great because they knew a bunch more facts or because they could compare values in Plato versus values in Maya Angelou. That doesn't lead you. That doesn't help you lead. It might help you with other things, but not leadership or entrepreneurship. And so I won this award last year from the provosts, from really high, high level at the university. And it was for teaching a course in entrepreneurial leadership. So I go around to these, all these departments and I say, I won this provost award, this high level support from the university. How about we do the course in your department? And every single one was like, this is great. This is what the students need. It's just not what my department does. So I know this belongs somewhere, just not here. So that's like really frustrating. It's uh, and as a, as a result of the book, ironically, I'm getting a lot of all this attention from these big corporations, which previously I looked at as being, you know, I looked at corporate, I don't really like corporate life. And so I thought I want to be in a place of learning. Well, it's learning of a certain type, but not learning of other types. And at least the corporations that contact me, they want learning for their people. And so it's like, it's, it was this rude awakening that now makes sense. That the universities, I mean, that the corporations want their people to learn. They want their people to develop. And they want it to work, to change the behavior. 
because corporations, you know, in retrospect, it makes sense. Corporations want you to perform better. Schools, they don't necessarily want you to perform better. Yeah, that's interesting. Their their goals are different. Their metrics are different for what they judge a successful uh, a successful student versus a su- successful employee. Like have different metrics attached to them. This the story though about how you went around to each department and they're like, "This is a good. I, this is good. Is exactly what students need, but not necessarily here." Reminds me of a conversation I had early on in my college days with a with a one of those career counselors who's like, "What do you want to be in five years?" And I you know, said whatever I said. And she goes, okay, well, the things you need to learn, you're not going to learn here. And she like listed off, you know, all the things that are soft skills. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And then I went and learned them elsewhere by like developing my own programs, developing, you know, my own organizations by doing the experiential part of it. But it is interesting that someone in leadership can point at it as the thing that students need to be successful, that the companies that want to hire the students want them to have these skills but there's a disconnect and yeah. people, the void that you're trying to fill. A major influence for me came not on purpose, but I was watching inside the actor studio a lot. And I saw how, how the social and emotional skills of actors is like through the roof, way beyond what any MBA that I've met and certainly beyond the leadership professors, you know, cause they're good at publishing or perishing. And I, and a lot of them dropped out of high school or college, you know, and they didn't have a traditional education. And actually at NYU, Tisch, the, the School of the Arts, has a tremendous drama program. So drama is not about, it's about performance. No one cares what your GPA is. They care if you can play the role and you, they ask you to perform, you know, at a tryout. And if you can perform, that's what they care about. And so in that part of the school, they, they, they care about, and you learn through experience. In other parts of the school, a lot of times, what they call experiential is not. It's to give a student a chance to get an internship and get credit for it is almost like, it's like they're saving on classroom space and taking credit for it because going off and working is not necessarily experiential learning. It doesn't give you, what advantage does the school give you for that? What, like doing an internship as a student as opposed to finishing college and then doing an internship, I don't see the advantage. Well, my exercises than, are not like go off and, yeah. and like do what everyone else is doing. It's do stuff like, you know, these exercises are like when you learn to play a, a sport, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of sports, you'll run sprints or lift weights in, in training, but basketball players, they'll lift a lot of weights. There's no lifting weights in basketball. It's an exercise that builds something relevant to basketball. And so sending someone out to do an internship isn't necessarily, that's like just scrimmaging all the time. It's not the worst thing in the world, but much more effective would be like doing something like sprints or, or like in music, you play scales. No one, pref- no one wants to go to Carnegie Hall to see someone playing scales, but anyone who plays there played a lot of scales. And so my exercises are like that. It's interesting. I love the analogy of the scales because it helps. I think people who aren't quite following what it is that you're, you're trying to offer. I think, I imagine another challenge is trying to explain uh, that your take is different and give people sort of a way to understand what it, what you're offering even is, right? Like since they're coming from a traditional lens on learning and you're trying to come at, from a very different way of saying like, this is a different way of taking in information and actually using it. Or is there sometimes like, what does your marketing look like? Like, how do you, how do you attract people 
into doing this work. Well, I, before I answer that, I have to say, I, just because I just got off the phone uh, a couple hours ago with one of my past students. And one of the things that I do to address what you were just talking about is he's coming into the first session next week of my summer fall class. Uh, this is an in-person class. At a, uh, it's executive education at a corporation. And he's actually an undergrad who took my course and he's going to come in and say, this is what I expected. This is what I was used to. This is what I have now. This is what changed. This is what, you know, here, it took me this long to figure it out. I'm sharing it with you so that you can get it, you know, shorter and get more out of the class. Wow. So it's That's great. Yeah. When I do it online, I don't have that. So, I mean, I have recordings of, you can, it, I have recordings of, of conversations I've had with people but it's not quite the same as like an in-person experience of someone saying, you know, I actually, there's a, I'll, I'll give you a link if, if it can, I'm not sure if it can go up, but I have a link of this. I sat down with, with a bunch of students, kind of Charlie Rose style, talking about their experiences with the class. And like one of them, she said, you know, I, you know, I started your class. I'm like, I, I know school. I get it. You assign me stuff. I write things. I get an A. And for her, it was, three quarters of the way through the class before she realized when I said do a project, I didn't mean do an abstract project. I mean, do something you really care about. And when she switched from doing something abstract, cause she thought, uh, I guess I'm supposed to do what I do in all the other classes. And she chose something that would specifically get her into law school because she wanted to go to law school. She was like, Oh, this is going to help me get into law school. And she could <laughs> double down and work a lot harder on it. That's great. So the marketing is really, it's a big challenge for me. And this is something that is, this is probably my biggest challenge is how do you convey to someone as far as I know, without experiencing it, it's experiential without experiencing it. I don't know how to communicate that how different it is, except to show me having conversations with people who've done it. And they're like, this is different. They're, at one point they just go around they're like, take the class. If you're thinking about taking it, take the class, it, which is not credible for me to say, of course I like my class. Right, right, right. No, but that's why video testimonials and conversations like that are so powerful um, I'm actually, uh, as we're recording this, I am um, in the middle of working on a sales page for uh, my first pilot course that's happening this fall. And when your, when your show comes out, I think it'll actually, uh, we'll be right in the middle of it. And, you know, how do you explain to people through words <laughs> what you can offer them when I teach networking? And like you, it's a very, you know, like the reason it's 10 weeks long is I want you to have time to go do it. You know, I'm going to teach you a few things and you're going to go out in the world and try it. And you're going to come back and have questions. They're going to answer your questions. And you're going to build community with other people who are also trying it. And I do think that that's part of the learning, right? Is being in a community of people who are also thinking about this stuff and trying to give value to the things that I know are incredibly valuable. But for most people, you know, they're like not, ready to be present in that way. And that's the only way you get anything out of it is by being really present. And I don't mean physically, but like, you know, putting attention into it and yeah. And follow through and, you know, all the things that are also helpful as a leader <laughs> uh, is to have good intent and follow through and for networking. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, um, you, you have a, a, a lot of things you enjoy doing. And I said in the top um, that, you know, it sounds like exercise and sports are a big part of your life. You're a big athlete. Um, do you have any intentionality around, um, I don't want to call it work-life balance. Maybe it's like work-life integration or like, what is, what does downtime look like for you and how do you have self-care? So, yeah, I, I think that if you're trying to balance work and life, you've separated something that I 
in my, for my, for me, I believe shouldn't be separated. And I have this, for some reason I associate it with rock stars. Cause I always think of like uh, Keith Richards does not like, if he's sitting there strumming the guitar and he comes up with a great riff, he doesn't say, Oh, after 5 PM, I'm off the clock. This doesn't count. Or likewise, when he's up on stage playing, he's not like, I'm, I better get paid for this. He loves it all the time. I love what I do all the time. And so, you know, I talked about how the, the challenge of getting my stuff accepted in a, in, a, in a traditional educational environment. There's some frustration, but before I started working with NYU, when NYU offered to hire me, my first thought was, you're the competition. I don't want to, you know, I want to do something different than you. But I also thought, oh, there's so many resources in the university. And, you know, it's got real estate in, in Manhattan. It's a great place to work. And I believe I can benefit more from the resources than they can slow me down with the bureaucracy and the politics. So, yeah, it's frustrating. But that's the frustration I knew going in. My model for that is, like, I don't like people beating me up. But if I'm a football player, I want the ball. And having the ball means people are going to try to tackle me. So part of becoming a football player is you're going to get tackled, well, if you're on the offense. And so if you're going to go into education and you're going to work in, in, in educating university-level students or professionals, yeah, you're going to have these frustrations. That's part of the deal. That's not a problem. That's how you come out. That's what you strive. That's, that gives you something to strive for. I, I'm a little curious, though, um, if there's – is there a habit uh, that you're – that you're still struggling to adapt into your life on a regular basis? Like, I mean, you're, you seem very disciplined in what you take on. So yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm glad you asked that question that way, because if you ask what habits I have, you know, there's tons of them uh, or rather when something clicks, I systematize it and make it habitual things. That, I'll tell you that there are times when I get frustrated and impatient and it's not that I, it's not a habit that I'm struggling. It's, there's certain patterns that certainly I, I hit every now and then. So um, there are times when I feel that I'm right and the other person's wrong. And over and over, like how many times do I have to learn that that's an opportunity for, for me to learn from someone else? If I think I'm right and they're wrong, okay, we're, we have different mental models. We have different ways of looking at the world. But a lot of times I just feel like, you know, oh, you just don't know as much as I do. Once I tell you this, then you'll agree with me. And it's like, when, how, how long do I, how many times do I have to learn that that's just annoying to people and it doesn't get the results that, I'm, that I think it will? And I don't know. That's one of them. Uh, See, that, that's why they don't get in the car with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now I'm a little more effective at that. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that one, I think, I think that one I can, I can do more effectively now. After that's only good. like 20 years of practice. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Um, so this is a podcast that also talks a lot about networking and I, you're, <laughs> you have a very interesting an expansive professional network because you've worked a lot of places. You've been part of a lot of uh, new companies. Um, you've inspired and worked with so many different students. Is there something you're doing to really nurture those relationships? Yeah. I mean, the, the whole fourth section of the book is about how to make connections, how to deepen connections. And then what I think is where a leader spends most, by far the most amount of time is on supporting other people and supporting other people. A lot of people think support is doing what you think is helpful, but you have to do what they think is helpful. 
And so you have to understand them and understand what motivates them, understand what their needs are, and get them to share these things with you. And for people to share those things with you usually makes them vulnerable. So it's getting people to share their vulnerabilities, so behave in ways that they feel comfortable that way, and then to give them that support. You know, I could be a lot better. I certainly, my natural state, if I don't really think about it, is like, how can I better my own world? But, you know, the relationships improve when it's how, do you, how can I help others? That's where meaning, you know, that's where a lot of people find meaning and purpose. And it's figuring out, learning, getting them to feel comfortable sharing what motivates them and then giving them that. So is there something you're doing to um, make that a habit? Not, not the mindset that you're talking about, but the actual offering The you know, are you... Are you bringing people together regularly to have conversations? Are you, you know, picking up the phone as you're walking down the street? Like, how do you systematize since you're so clearly that's how you approach life? But how, do, how are you, yeah, you know, creating the infrastructure to make that real, to make sure you're actually doing it? And do you have a way of judging whether you're successful on, you know, the building these relationships and nurturing these relationships? Well, I mean, teaching is a part of that. I didn't go into teaching for the money and I didn't go into teaching for the prestige. And it's to, it's to be effective. And the effectiveness is that the students learn. The podcast, the leadership in the environment is, I believe that there are, I think the overwhelming majority of people want to pollute less, want to emit less, and they can't figure out how. And it's, I went through a deep struggle, not deep. I was, it, I'd get on an airplane and I knew that it was polluting and I did it anyway. And that's soul destroying. You know, it's, it's, I would do things that I knew that I didn't want to do and I would stop, I wouldn't stop myself. And living by my values, I'm sorry, espousing certain values, saying I've had certain values, but not living by them. and only through taking action, only through living through these changes of, you know, changing my diet and not flying and things like that, did I realize how much it improves your life to go through the struggle of taking on, of of doing what you act, like actually behaving consistently with these values. Mm -hmm. And frankly, how crazy it sounds, I'm going to be the Nelson Mandela of the environment. But that's what the world, I believe that's what the world needs. I believe, I mean, either it's not going to work, in which case we're all going down anyway. I think, you know, if the sea levels rise and so forth, that's going to be big trouble. Or if it works, I think it's going to improve the lives of, of billions of people. That's my goal. Yeah. As a side I, effect, the temperature won't go up as much as it would have otherwise. Right. But the main thing is for people to live their lives better. Right. And so, the, yeah, the, the metric would be CO2 levels don't rise as fast as they would have. And people living more according to the values. So the, the people though, that you like have uh, worked with in, in like 10 years ago, are you still in touch? Are you, are they part of this? Are you bringing them into it or were they There's a, a different small time? Number that are. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's always surprised me how much churn there is in people's lives. I mean, people move from city to city and, you know, when I was in grade school, I kind of thought, Oh, these are gonna be my friends forever. That's what's on TV. I mean, like they're like, what was on TV when I was a kid, like uh, the facts of life or, or uh, different strokes. It's like the same people every time, but it doesn't seem to work that way. And it's kind of sad to me 
there are a few, you know, friends that stay for a long, long time. On the other hand, I really like the people who are in my life now. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, that's good. Um, so if you had the opportunity to speak to your younger self at 25 and you were trying to encourage yourself to build a strong, supportive professional network, what would be the advice you'd give yourself? You know, I, 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 don't, know if the, I don't know if this will sound like what you expected, but I, at, at 25, I would say, like, approach more girls. And the challenge that you're going to face there of, of like, those social emotional challenges they're not exactly the same as the professional ones, but the ability to develop the skills that's there. And I was way too scared for too long. And I don't think that benefited anybody. That's such a great answer actually, because when people are like, well, I don't, how do I practice this? You're like, actually (laughs) it's, it's, it's right there. You can practice this anytime. If we had the opportunity, Josh, to meet a year from now, which I hope we do because I get down to New York quite a bit. Uh, and we were celebrating what an amazing year you've had. What would we be celebrating? Oh, that would be the podcast. That would be having an effect on lots of people. A really big guy, Ted, is going to be one of my uh, guests. I'm going to interview him next week. And he said, to do a TED Talk, you have to have one clear message. Not two, one. And I'm kind of working on it because I haven't, I haven't been invited to give a TED Talk yet. But the one thing is that we look at, I believe the predominant way of looking at changing your behavior to pollute less and to emit less. I think the way people look at it is deprivation and sacrifice. I want to do something you're saying I can't. And the one change I want to do is for that belief to become, this is my opportunity to live according to my values, to improve my life. And when you live by your values, value is like good or bad. When you choose something you value, that's, it's, it's more good. It's, it's making your life better. And so if a year from now, lots of people, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if millions of people, if billions of people are like taking steps or at least looking at it as like something I could do, no, they have to take steps, not just because I, I really don't like this concept of awareness. People think, they think of it as a milestone, but in practice, it's almost always the end point. And awareness, the way I put it is, Imagine you're interviewing someone for a job and you say, you know, we need to make sure you have five years. No, imagine you're going to have surgery and you're talking to the doctor and you say, well, you know, have you done these types of surgery before? And they're like, well, I'm aware of this type of surgery. (laughs) You're like, that's not what I want. I want someone who's done this before. I want behavior. So I got to make sure people change their behavior. Hey, Josh. So how can people find you and follow your work? So joshuaspodak.com is my blog and that's the personal stuff that's my views on the world spodakacademy.com is my courses and i'll put up a page spodakacademy.com slash robbie i guess if that works for you that'll have like my social media and all the links there and that'll have like one of the exercises from the book and an excerpt that's great s-p-o-d-e-k academy.com slash what's r-o-b-b-i-e yeah yeah that's great well, I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find you and follow your work. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Josh. Thank you. I've had a great time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh Spodek. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 63. 
As I mentioned at the top of the show, I want to help you turn that stack of business cards you've been collecting into cash, clients, and credibility. Let's work together to create a strategic plan, a networking plan that will have a system for following up and staying connected. I want you to get to the end of the weekend knowing you had concrete evidence that you took steps to meet your goals. Get started by reading my best-selling business book, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. Purchase it at robbysamuels.com forward slash bookstore and receive all of the book's bonuses, including the free audiobook. Would you rather one-on-one coaching? Contact me through my website, robbysamuels.com, and we can schedule a time to chat about personalizing a strategic networking plan for you and creating a system for tracking your most important connections. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I would love to read your review on iTunes. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.